Well, please, if you would, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. As we continue our topical study on the fear of God. And I plan to continue this when I return next week. And we have the joy of having um, a couple of guest preachers. I'll be leading worship with you all here, but Bill Marsh is preaching in the morning, and Stephen Atkinson in the evening, our missionary to the Jews in America. And then um, after that, I'll be on vacation for four weeks, and then away also at a week preaching at the Family Bible Conference of our denomination at Bon Clarkin. And when I return um, in the month of August, as we go through the dog days of summer, I plan to continue thinking with you about the fear of the Lord and walking before God as His children. And then as we lean into the fall, I'll begin a new series in the morning on the book of Philippians, God willing, as we look toward Christmas time. That is our plan, God willing. Now, with the Word of God um, open, I can find Romans, which is not hard to find if you go in the right direction. Um, Romans 8. Let's read together the Word of God from verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the Spirit of Him who, dwe- who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Having pastored now for the best part of 25 years, I have come to believe that most Christians have too negative a view of God. It's something I think we all struggle with. We, we tend to view God as a harsh taskmaster, one who is always pointing out our sins and is essentially and eternally disappointed with us. It's the story of Susan in um, Sam Storm's book, The Singing God. Susan was a girl who grew up in a home with a fairly tyrannical father who was never happy with her. His love was always dangled on a string like a carrot just out of reach. If she could be pretty enough, he would love her. If she could get good enough grades, he would love her. If she would do well enough on the sports team, he would love her. 
If she would not embarrass him in public, he would love her. And she grew up perpetually and continually um, striving to, to feel her father's love, but just never quite getting there. She said, I, I was never quite pretty enough, slim enough, smart enough, she said. Susan never did get a bite of that carrot. Sam Storms observed. All she could remember was the bitter aftertaste of her father's disdain and rejection. And Sam says he strived, he strove, he quoted Bible verse after Bible verse trying to help her understand the love of God for her, but he wasn't making any headway whatsoever until he came to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how God feels about you, Susan, Storm said. He looks at you. He thinks of you, and when he does, he sings for joy. Is that your vision of God this morning, I wonder? Do you struggle to imagine God looking at you and singing for joy? And you probably think, no, you probably think to yourself, but God knows me even better than I know myself, and what I know of myself makes me sick half of the time. I can't I hardly imagine God looking at me and singing for joy. Is your vision of God mostly positive, our Father in heaven, or is it mostly negative? Maybe it's a battle between your head and your heart. In your head, you know, right, that God loves you. The Bible says it, and it's there. But in your heart, you just can't feel it. Where are you at in your walk with God this morning? Well, I want to draw your attention this morning to these verses in Romans 8. Our text is, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, and I'm going to read a different translation. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again that leads to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the last of a series of contrasts in Romans 8. There's a series of them. Paul begins with the the two laws, the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life. The law of sin and death is the commanding power of sin in the human heart that seeks to manipulate us and control us and lead us to sin. That's contrasted by the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit filling the Christian with life and enabling the Christian to obey God's law and do meaningful, tangible acts of righteousness in the strength of God. Then there's the two different mindsets, the mind set on the flesh and the mind set on the Spirit. The mindset in the flesh describes the unconverted man or the very unhealthy Christian whose mind never looks up, who always looks down, whose mind gravitates toward his sinful, worst inclinations. And so his eyes are full of adultery, his heart is trained in greed, his thoughts ruminate over the injustices of life, the wrongs that have been done to him how unfair life is, the things other people have that he doesn't have, all those kind of thoughts that draw us by a gravitational logic away from God, away from light, out into the darkness. By contrast, there's the, those who set their mind in the things of the Spirit, who fill their minds, as Paul says in Philippians 4, with that which is true and honorable and pure and lovely and kind things, and excellent things, and praiseworthy things. They dwell on these things, right? And that pulls their heart toward love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and 
self-control, these two mindsets. And then the two destinies, right? The mindset on the flesh leads to death, but the mindset on the Spirit leads to life and peace. Those are the contrasts. Well, the last contrast Paul deals with here are the two attitudes that people have toward God. There's the spirit of bondage and the spirit of adoption. Paul says, you did not, and I'm reading the New King James here, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again, the word is in the Greek, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. These two different attitudes, the dread of a slave and the reverence of a son. These two different attitudes. I want to spend some time this morning working through this verse with you. I think it's very, very important. I think it's vital because if you go wrong here, your whole relationship with God will be out of joint and crooked, and you'll limp on the way to heaven when you ought to be running. So what, what, you, what I want you to see is here, Paul is contrasting, if you like, two different fears. There's the fear of a slave and the fear of a son. Some people read this verse as if we're through with the fear of God, that the fear of God was some kind of Old Testament thing, right? And now we've moved beyond that. That's not the case at all. The New Testament is full. I mean, I could list 30 verses and more where the fear of God is used in a positive sense. It's used to describe the church and its health in Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's a healthy church full of comfort and the fear of the Lord, right? Paul uses it to describe the Spirit-filled Christian in Ephesians 5. Yes, what does the spiritual Christian do? He's always singing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's making melody in his heart and so forth. He's giving thanks at all times for all things. But he also submits to one another in the fear, literally, of Christ. The ESV puts reverence, but the word is fear, the fear of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 14, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? In 1 Peter 1 verse 17, in the very context of our relationship with our Father, Peter says, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Okay? But it's one thing to fear God. It's entirely another to be frightened of God. And essentially, that's what Paul is contrasting here the slave is frightened of his master and lives in bondage, but the son fears his father and lives in liberty, what he calls later in Romans 8, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Which one describes your relationship with God? Are you frightened of a master, or do you fear your father who loves you more than the life of his own son? What describes your relationship with God? It really does make all the difference in the world. Let's look at this verse together. I'm reading the New King James Version. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The key word is again, right? And it's kind of in the ESV it's in, the, it's in the Greek, but it's kind of, it makes its way by a circuitous route into the ESV when he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, right? So you've been there before, kind of, is what the ESV is saying. But I like the word again better. It's the Greek word palin, which means again. So you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we crowd Abba Father. What's he saying? Well, it seems to me, and John Bunyan, the Jim referred to earlier on, he actually preached a whole sermon on this verse and this word again. And in and, and, and John Bunyan's opinion, I think he's right, nuanced it a little bit, but he's right in that he sees that, that almost every Christian at 
at the very beginning of their walk, probably before they were converted, go through a phase of a spirit of bondage to fear. <coughs> and by that he means we're frightened of God. We realize we've sinned. We're under His wrath and curse. We can do nothing to recommend ourselves to God. And it's that fear that drives us to Christ. We can't All we can do is make things worse. We're like a man with dirty hands trying to clean a small stain or a big stain on a a bride's wedding dress. The harder we try, the worse it gets, right? And we're frightened, and we ought to be, and we run to Christ, and we're saved. And in that sense, it marks a transitional phase of the Christian's experience as he goes from sin and guilt through grace to Christ. But Paul says you don't want to go back there, right? It'd be like the girls in the congregation, the ladies going back and playing with their Barbies, or the guys going back and playing with their G.I. Joes. It would be a bit weird, right? You don't do that. You've grown beyond those things. And Paul says you don't want to go back again to a spirit of bondage that leads to fear, right? That would be going backwards, we instead have a spirit of adoption. Now, that's, a, that's another important thing to note. There's a clear contrast, and the, the New King James ca- captures it beautifully, a spirit of bondage and a spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption, by definition, deals with God as a father. The spirit of bondage or slavery deals with God as a master. And there's all the difference in the world between those two attitudes, those two conceptions of God. Which one do you have? Remember hearing Derek Thomas, and I think you've heard this before, some of you at least anyway, but Derek was in the Holy Land at the, at the, at the, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the, the wall of the Temple of Solomon is still there, the foundation of it at least anyway. It's Friday evening, the Sabbath is just beginning, and there's a Orthodox Jew, like Johnny Cash, black hat, black tie, black jacket, black trousers, white shirt, right? And he's running to get to synagogue. He's late. And he's dragging behind him this little boy, three or four years of age. And we boys' legs can't keep up with his dad. And Derek's watching this almost comical scene as the wee boy's taking, you know, bounding, you know, his strides are like 20 feet long because he can't keep up with his father, and he just jumps from, like, stride to stride. And in desperation, the little boy calls out, Abba, Abba. And the father looks back. I think he's forgotten he had a son in two, and he, he, he remembers himself, and he reaches down and gathers up the little lad into his arms and embraces him. And he runs on to synagogue with his son in his arms. And Derek suddenly thought, he heard the word Abba, Abba. And it just suddenly dawned on him, that's how I relate to God. Is that how you relate to God? Or do you still see him as a slave master with the lash ready to strike you every time you fall short? When you view God like that, when you view God as a slave master rather than a father, two things inevitably happen in your relationship with Him. First of all, you draw back from fellowship with God. It's like Adam in the garden. You remember, turn there a second quickly, Genesis 3. You know this story well. But I want you to see the, the specific language, right? Adam, the greatest anticlimax the Bible ever had, You'll be like God, the serpent says, and Adam and Eve ate, and they knew they were naked. And Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, 
and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's, that's, that's a perfect picture of the spirit of bondage. Adam's naked. He, he's totally disqualified from standing in God's presence. He's in bondage to his sin, and the only hope is to run and hide because God, in Adam's mind, is coming to condemn him and to damn him and to kill him. Spurgeon, in a wonderful sermon he wrote called A Fear to be Desired, contrasts the fear of Adam running from God to the fear that draws us to God. The man who has the right kind of fear, Spurgeon says in his heart, cannot live without seeking God's face, confessing his guilt before him, and receiving pardon from him. He seeks God because of this fear, just as Noah, moved with fear, built the ark wherein he and his household were saved. So do these men, moved with fear, draw nigh unto God and seek to find salvation through His love and grace. Always notice this distinction, Spurgeon says. Always notice this distinction. And observe that the fear which drives anyone away from God is a vice and a sin. But the fear that draws us toward God, as with silken bonds, is a virtue to be cultivated. And if you have the spirit of bondage that leads to fear, that fear will drive you away from God. You won't want to be near God. You'll be frightened of Him. But the right kind of fear draws you toward Him, right? A second aspect of this wrong kind of fear, a spirit of bondage, is that it doesn't just drive you away from God's fellowship or draws you back from God's fellowship, but it'll also cause you to draw down in your service of God. You won't serve God willingly. And you'll see that in, in Matthew 25. Our vision of God really does drive everything. Look at this verse. I think I might have mentioned it in, in recent weeks. I forget. But if I've forgotten, you may have as well. That's okay. I preached the sermon. It's bad if I forget it, but if I've forgotten, you may have too. So, Matthew 25, verse 14. We definitely didn't read the passage, though, but it's important to see. For it'll be like a man going, Christ is speaking about judgment day, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each one according to his ability. Now, it's important to realize, right, that a talent, like one talent, sounds like, like not very much, right? But a talent is actually equivalent to 20 years' worth of labor. That's like, I don't know, a million dollars. 20 years' worth of labor. And that's a conservative estimate. So one talent is not a, not a mean-spirited gift. And the gift is measured not by the generosity of the master, but by the ability of the servant, Right? according to his ability. Not everybody can handle five talents. It's important to know that if you're the one-talent guy. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This master is not mean. He's not, he's not hard. He's generous, and he's joyful. And he also had he, he who had the two talents came forward and saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And they went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. 
demands vision of God. That's the master in the story. Drove everything. The reason he hid the talent in the ground was because he completely the wrong vision of God. In fact, his vision of God gave God a clearer vision, not that God had a bad vision, gives us a clearer vision of the man's heart. The man's vision of God was wrong because the man's heart was wrong. That's why he was a wicked and slothful servant. His heart was wicked and slothful. And it was through that lens of a wicked and slothful heart that he viewed God as a hard and wicked God. And if you view God as a hard taskmaster, it will always dislocate your service. At best, you'll go limping and halting on the way to heaven when you ought to be running. So I ask you again this morning, your vision of God, is it positive or negative? Is it a father who loves you more than the life of his own son? Or is it a master who's always disappointed with you? He always thinks, you know, like my report cards when I was a young boy, Neil is very smart, but he could do better. Is that what God thinks of you? I was lazy. Maybe you think God, God looks down, disappointed, could do better. What do you think of God? What do you think God thinks of you this morning? It makes all the difference in the world. How can you know if you have a spirit of bondage to fear? Well, there are a number of symptoms. The first symptom is your Christian life is dogged by a fear of God's condemnation. You serve a forever frowning God. Nothing you ever do is good enough. And you constantly feel the sting of his displeasure. It's what John speaks about in 1 John 4. Turn there a second with me. We're doing 1 John in our Bible study on, the, on Friday mornings. Next Friday is our last one for the summer, by the way, but we are... Um, I haven't got to 1 John 4 yet, and we won't next Sunday, next Friday. Now, John is speaking in the context of love, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is the love of God manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How do you know that God loves he sent His Son to die in order that you might live. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's the context. Now, turn over the page. Or not, as your Bible might be. But verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's very interesting. He doesn't say feel. He says believe. You, you, you believe your way into the love of God. You don't feel your way into the love of God. Faith works on the basis of words from the Bible and promise. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected. By this love comes to full maturity, John is saying, with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's the fear of bondage that you're constantly concerned that God is going to punish you for your sins. And God says to you, how could I punish you for your sins? I've punished Jesus for your sins, all of them. But if you have a spirit of bondage, you'll always be thinking, God's going to punish me for my sins. Because of that, if you've got a spirit of bondage leading to fear, you'll not just fear punishment, you'll also fear death. Because death is like being summoned to the headmaster's office when you're in high school. Not a good place to go. 
I got summoned to the headmaster's office one, one day. I'd, I'd, I'd done badly in school again. And I was being summoned for the slipper, and I was standing, which was one step down from the, from the cane. And there was a long line of boys who were guilty of various levels of infraction ahead of me. And some of them, like, shaved and drove cars. But they were getting the cane, and, like, they came out crying. And they shaved, and they were crying. And I was thinking, oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> and I, I would then get the slipper. Actually, Mr. Vi was a very kindly man. They still gave me the slipper. But it was terrifying, right? And people, if, you, if you have a vision of God as one's out to get you, you're going to think you're going to be frightened of death because death is bringing you to God, the God who's out to get you, which is exactly the kind of thing that Hebrews speaks about in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, Christ Himself partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to the lifelong slavery. The very reason, Jesus says, I came with a body with flesh and blood was so that in that body I might die. And the reason I died was to deliver you from the fear of death. And the only way you can fear death is if you forget my human life and my human death. That was, as John Owen said, the death of death in the death of Christ. And as you close your eyes to what Christ has done in His body, only by doing that will you open your eyes to what you think God will yet do to you and your body, which is damn you. No, no. There can be no punishment left for you, Christian, because God has given all of the punishment He ever had to give to Jesus in His body, and you're free from the bondage of death. But the Christian who has a spirit of bondage again to fear is always frightened of God's punishment and is therefore always frightened of death. And also then, in the next step, is never able to maintain his poise or her poise in times of trial. Because if you have, if you have a spirit of bondage leading to fear, what are trials? Ah, God's giving you your comeuppance. It's like the aperitif of hell. You know, you're getting what you deserve, good and proper. It's like democracy is the idea, someone said, that the people knew what they did, the common people knew what they deserve, and they're going to get it good and proper, um, which is often true. But, um, but the, the Christian lives with fear. Trials are always the result of God's anger, God getting me back from my sin. And that's exactly what the writer to Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews 11. Turn there a second with me, Hebrews 11. Sorry, I say 11, I meant 12, sorry. And notice in Hebrews 12, he's speaking about the lens of looking at your trials through the lens of God's fatherly, loving discipline, or looking at the lens of trial through how much they hurt and how painful they are, how unfair they are, and the difference. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding of blood. He's contrasting Christ and them. Christ had such an awful earthly life. It was from bad to worse and then to hell. And he shed blood fighting against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Paul says, when you're being disciplined, you're not being beaten by a master, a tyrant. You're being trained by a father who loves you. And when I discipline my children, I always tell them, this will hurt you more than it hurts me, but I also tell them, um, you know, son, daughter, I love you. I'm on your side. I'm not against you. There's a, there's a list of people who would run into a burning building to save your life. And it's a short list. And your mother and your father are the top of that list. I'm the friend of your happiness. I'm not against you. And I discipline you now, whether it be a rod or some other way, because I love you. I'm not against you. I'm on your side. And that's, that's the spirit that the writer to the Hebrews is saying you should have when you're disciplined. If you don't have that spirit, it'll do to you what the one talent guy happened. Oh, he's a hard taskmaster. And you will be dislocated from your willingness to serve him, which is why he says next, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. These people, if you don't see the goodness of God in your trial, it'll completely change the way you live in the trial. There'll be no joy. Look at it like this. A minister, I know a minister, right, who who was always, you know, kept in the small churches, never got to go and speak at conferences, and was just got really kind of, you know, he's not fair. And that was his spirit, right? Not fair. Why does everybody else get to go? Why does Pastor Stuart get to go and speak at conferences and so forth? Why is his church growing and so forth and so on? And it's not, not fair, right? But what a difference if we say, Maybe God knows that, and actually the, 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 the minister's autobiographical, <laughs> you know, um, it's me, right? But, but, if, but when I remember that God knows I couldn't cope, maybe I couldn't cope speaking at the big conferences or being in the, you know, the 4,000-member church, it would destroy me. Maybe I'd be even more prideful than I already am and less useful. And so it's my Father keeping me. For 20 years in, it, in, in small churches that were struggling to grow, before he brings me to this church that has begun to grow, because it took me 20 years because I'm so stupid to learn the lesson. It's not because of me. It's because of him. But it's an awful lot easier to live 20 years in the wilderness when you see it's my Father's hand setting the course before me. I'm thinking it's not fair. Why does everybody else get it? No, you know, do you see how to, your, your, your concept of God completely transforms the way you live in trial? And one of the reasons why so many of you and so many of us struggle to go through trials and struggle to count it all joy when we fall into trial is because we, see our, we don't see the trials come from the measured hand of our Heavenly Father. Every time something goes wrong, we think, God doesn't love me. Oh, uh, and everything unravels. Am I describing you all this morning or just myself? That whenever we have a spirit of bondage leading to fear, we, we live our lives constantly fearing punishment, constantly fearing death, and constantly misjudging trials and why trials come into our lives in the first place. And it makes the Christian life a misery. And that's why joy is so often absent. A last symptom I want to set before you this morning of a spirit of bondage leading to an unhealthy fear is that if you don't have a proper vision of God, you'll always have an improper vision of man. If your fear of God is right, it'll shrink the fear of man down to its appropriate size. But if you have a harsh, negative view of God, you'll never be able to rise above and conquer the fear of men because men will look too big and God will look too small, which is exactly Christ's point in Matthew 10. Turn there, and this is the last Scripture verse you'll turn to this morning, I believe. And if it's not, you'll forgive me. But I really do believe it is the last one. Anyway, Matthew 10. 
verse 28. Let's go back to verse 26, actually. So have no fear of them, these wicked people who are attacking you. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear, whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Right? So Jesus is saying, don't be frightened of the wicked. Sometimes the wicked will say things that are unbearably hurtful to you and terribly hateful. And nobody knows but you and the wicked person. No, Christ says, God also knows. And there's coming a day that what they said and what they did will be revealed and justice will be done. Don't panic. And then Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, you read that, and most of you read that, and you think what Christ is saying is this. Don't fear the jihadist who can chop off your head with a blunt butter knife after much sawing, because God can actually damn you to hell, right? God's much worse than the jihadist. Fear God, not the jihadist. That is not what God is, what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying, fear God more than the jihadist, because God can damn you to hell. What Christ is saying is, fear God rather than the jihadist, because God will damn him to hell, Right? He's not trying to scare you with God. Look at the next verse. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. Jesus isn't trying to frighten you with God here. He's trying to woo you to God here. It's like that moment, you remember, whenever um, Joni Erickson Tada described how she loved, as a child, going to zoos. When she was at zoos, she would love, best of all, going to the bird enclosures, where there were parrots and eagles and everything else, birds of paradise and ostriches and so forth. And she loved looking at those birds. But then when she was converted later in times of trial, and she obviously was paralyzed from the neck down after her diving accident, when she was reading this verse, it occurred to her that nobody ever bothers to put a sparrow on show in a zoo. They're too common and they're too cheap. A scruffy little sparrow. Buy two a penny. And yet Jesus says, this is the measure of God's love for you. Why? Because in the, of the billions of sparrows on God's green earth, God knows every single one of them by name. And the devil can't even take the life of one sparrow without your heavenly Father's permission. And if God takes care of the sparrows with such tenderness, do the math. Is he not going to take care of you? It's the goodness of God that draws the, the child of God to fear him. As Calvin said again, I've quoted this before as well, but it's my favorite Calvin quote, the gist of true piety does not consist in a fear that would gladly flee the judgment of God, but rather in a pure and true zeal which embraces God altogether as Father, or loves God altogether as Father, sorry, reveres him truly as Lord, and embraces his justice and dreads to offend him more than to die. But it's the love of the Father that draws him, right? <laughs> so we're back again to where we started your vision of God. Is it the master about to beat you? Or is it your father who knows your frame and is mindful that you are but dust and views you with compassion and love? Which is it? How do you get there? Because even if you know it in your head, feeling it in your heart, 
even believing it in your heart can be a stretch. Two things to say and close the sermon. First of all, the first place you go in your vision of God is to the old rugged cross. That God, you measure the love of God not by how you feel, you measure the love of God by what He did. God sent His Son to the cross, which was the cruelest form of punishment. The Jews regarded Julius Caesar as a merciful Caesar because he slit the throats of men before he crucified them. He was merciful. You're nailed to the cross, both feet and your hands, and the nail will go through the, 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 the foundation of your hand, separating the bones, but it would pierce the median nerve. So you know how sore it is when you hit your humerus, your funny bone, it's not funny. You hit your humerus off a, off a table, you feel like electric shocks going down your arm. Imagine having a nail driven through your median nerve in your hand and hanging by your arms. And having to breathe, and the Romans put a seat called the sedicula at the base of your spine that you could sit on and lift, help, help lift yourself up so you'd suffer even longer, right? Now, the Jews, if they'd wanted to kill Jesus, they would have stoned him. They didn't just want to kill him. They wanted to break him and to humiliate him and to crush him. And that's why they demanded the cross for him. Naked, two feet off the ground for all to see, shamefully exposed, an object for dogs to gnaw on after you were dead and birds to chew out your eyes after you were hanging there for a few days. A terrible thing, an awful, awful place. A picture of sin, what sin is, what sin does, what sin deserves. The curse of God, hell on earth. And the Jews hated it. We drive past rows of shops on the way home from church. On the way home from synagogue in Christ's day, they drove past rows of crosses. It's unspeakable. And your heavenly Father sent His Son there so that He wouldn't have to send you there. He sent His Son to die so that you might live. He sent His Son to be condemned, that you might not just be forgiven, but you might be justified, declared righteous. This is the measure of your Father's love. And you, 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 you think about that. You dwell at the rugged cross. And you hear your Father, like little not brown hair. You know, I love you to the moon and back. This is how much I love you. Little not brown hair. You read the story. God says at the cross, this is how much I love you. I sent my son from heaven to hell and back again. And you pray, Lord, move my cold, dead heart with the sight of the cross. That's, that's the evidence you might be dying of cancer. You might be a, a barren woman who's never had a child and feels sorry and sad, as I understand. As I can only try to imagine the pain and the loneliness. And, and, and all, your life might have gone from bad to worse, and you might think, oh, God hates me. No, God loves you if you're looking to Jesus. He loves you. That's number one. The second thing I want to say to you is this, Right? Never outgrow your need for Jesus. And don't, don't just mean in your justification, but especially in your sanctification, right? Because we often think of the Christian life a bit like bicycling. You know when you learn to bicycle as a child, your dad pushes you, who's on to you, and then when you get going, he lets you go, and you're on your own. Right? We think about that. You believe in Jesus, and then you, you, your sins are forgiven, and then you get up and you just, you know, white-knuckle your way to Jesus, to holiness, like an alcoholic at AA, just trying not to take the next drink, trying to stay sober. 
We think like that. That's not the Christian life at all. I, I had children like that. We'll change the names, doesn't matter. But one of our children growing up, their, 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 their motto was, I do it myself. And so they're like 18 months, and we're trying to walk, and they're going, or maybe a year. And I do it myself. And you go, okay. And then they stand there, and they go, and they face plant. And you go, okay. Pick them up again, and they go, I do it myself. And you go, okay, see, that works for you. And they, and, and it's like painful. And, but it's the chat, I do it myself. And Jesus says, you can do nothing yourself. You can't even read Psalm 23 and understand it without the help of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is too simple that you can't mess up. You can't do anything yourself. And every step you take in the Christian life, lean on Jesus. I'm opening your Bible in the morning to read John 14, verse 1. Lord, I can't do this without you. I can't do anything without you. I am completely helpless and hopeless. Help me. Lean upon him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God at work in you. Lord Jesus, you must work in me, or I can't work out for you. Every step, hold his hand. No sin too simple to overcome. No virtue too easy to put on. No lesson too simple to learn. You need Jesus every step of the way. And you let go of the hand of Jesus, and immediately you're on your own, you think. And what you're doing is, even if you're doing the right thing, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're doing it to make yourself feel better about yourself. Look, I did it myself. Oh, and you're on your face again. Disaster. But when you leave go of the hand of Jesus, you're doing things to try and make yourself feel better. I don't need grace as much as I thought I did. I can do this myself. I'm not a complete failure. And you're suddenly building a spirit where you are trying to manufacture a righteousness that somehow recommends you to God. And every time you go there, you end up in a spirit of bondage to fear because nothing you ever do can recommend you to God except for his damnation. And the only way to escape that is holding the hand of your elder brother and saying, I can't do it myself. I need you to help me. Every step of the way. And when you walk holding your, brother, your elder brother's hand, you can't fail but to have the assurance that you are his father's son. And in that mindset, there's nothing to fear and only the love and the smile of your heavenly father who knows your frame and who's well pleased to give you his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words and the way you speak through the great weakness of your servants. We ask you, Lord, to teach us all, O oh God, to walk in your ways and to love your truth and to be confident of your love in Christ, both in our justification but also our sanctification. We offer these prayers in Christ's name.